You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I am joined by Bree Pettis. Welcome, Bree. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. So for anybody who doesn't know who you are, what you do, you know, what are the details? Who are, who are you? What do you do? Where can they find you online? All that stuff. Sure. So I'm Bree Pettis. I have a company called Bantam Tools. We make desktop CNCs, and our customers are mostly... Engine, impatient engineers and educators. So, you know, our customers are a little bit different from the customers that buy the really big expensive machines, but I'm pretty much obsessed with empowering people with tools that they might not normally have access to. That's sort of my jam. And I uh, did that as a, a teacher in middle school and did that making video tutorials on the internet and then with MakerBot and still, still doing it with Bantam Tools. Awesome. Let's get into your backstory then, you know, how did you get into manufacturing? How did you kind of, I've looked into your backstory a little bit and it's not the normal straight line path that some of us take into manufacturing. So I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I'm definitely, you know, I say yes to things and I get myself in trouble and then have to figure my way out of it. Right. So, um, I, I think it sort of goes back to this moment I had when I was really young and I had an uncle who had sort of a alternative lifestyle where he would go out in a truck every morning and knew all the trash routes in Boston. And we put together a bike out of like three or four bicycles that were not functional. And we made a bike. And I think he did most of the work because I was like seven or six, somewhere in there. And, but I felt like I had, I knew how it worked. I did enough of the wrenching that I was like, oh, if this breaks, I can fix it. And this bike is mine. Very, this is, I have fixed it. It is mine kind of feeling. And Kept that thread going, making stuff. Ended up, my first job out of college was in the film industry and ended up working for Jim Henson's Creature Shop, being an assistant, working on animatronic robots. I became a puppeteer and after a couple of years of really not making money at that, uh, decided to up my game and become a school teacher. And then after realizing that I couldn't actually afford to have a family or even a car on that salary, I, I, uh, I started a side hustle making art and eventually fell into video, making video art. And nobody was interested in that either. So I started publishing, I started just filming my, 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 my teaching for students, teaching them how to make stuff and publishing that to the internet before, like before YouTube existed. So I found out like my students would like, it's amazing. Like my students, and this is, so we're in like 2005 era. And if I put myself on the TV, they heard everything I said. If I said it out loud in person, I had to repeat myself like three or four times. Like TV is amazing, right? Oh yeah. And started publishing those things to the internet, got, ended up getting a gig, making video, making, ma having to make something every week and publish a tutorial on the internet on Friday at noon for make magazines, video blog and video podcast. And then uh, moved to New York and you know, where, when I, where I lived in Seattle, everybody had a garage, but in New York, everybody has like a closet. So. Ended up gathering some folks and starting a hacker space called NYC Resistor, which was basically the idea was, let's get some hardware folks. And instead of having all of our stuff in our closet, let's rent a place and, and share it and be able to make anything and, 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 and hang out a bunch too. So that was really fun. I worked at Etsy in the middle of there too. Uh, and then we started MakerBot in January, 2009. We'd started Thingiverse a few months before and. Thought it was just going to be a side hustle. People probably, you know, these are so weird. People didn't know what they were. We thought, well, we'll, we'll make a couple every month and sell them to the weirdos like us. That was so surprising to me is finding out that you guys came up with Thingiverse before MakerBot, that, that you, you had the, the 
forethought to think, oh, we need a place to store all these files. And, and you know, now it's ubiquitous. It's the Sharpie of 3D you know, online, you know, places. I mean, we, we're coming from a place where video, you could download videos on the internet. You could download music on the you know, inter- internet. Napster had not closed that long ago at that point. Uh, you could... And you could download, you know, text and books and all this kind of stuff. And we were like, you should be able to download things. And we were like, yeah, let's spend an hour on Saturday and make a website for things. We had this, we had this routine called Saturday spaz, where we would just do bad ideas to just do them. (laughs) And Thingiverse was one of those. And it was like, what should we call it? And I was like, well, it's a universe of things. We're going to have downloadable things. Like, I wonder if, and it was just like, Thingiverse.com, I was like, it's available. That's what it's going to be called. We have the domain name. Full speed ahead. That's amazing. So and then, and then how long after that was MakerBot formed? A couple, a couple months. I think Thingiverse was like August of 2008. And we got the checking account and the LLC started in January of 2009. It was not the best time to start a business. We went to the bank to get a bank account, which is sort of like one of the things that tells you like you're doing something like you have to at least pretend you're legit when uh-huh. you get a bank account, you know? Oh yeah. I remember doing it myself, you know, what, eight years ago now, but I, it was, yeah, yeah, it was a big thing. You're like, oh man, I'm, I'm official now. And we're in New York and the, it was the like epic financial crisis. And the manager of the bank came out and was like, I just want to meet the people who are crazy enough to start a business in 2009. Who are you guys? And we were like, we make 3D, we're going to make 3D printers. And he was at that time, people had no idea. I mean, we would explain 3D printers in the, in the context of CNC machining. We were like, it's like a CNC machine, but instead of subtractive, it's additive. People still don't get that. So yeah, I'm sure back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we would be on the subway and people are like, what is that contraption? We'd be like, it's a time machine. And they'd be like, how does it work? We'd be like, no, it's a joke. Yeah, probably just as much buy-in for Time Machine as 3D printer at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Well, then, so, you know, how was the course of MakerBot? Because I think that, you know, a lot of us know the name, but maybe not know the story and, and, you know, how you got to your exit and all of that. Uh, I had the full full ride as an entrepreneur, right? So we started, we gave away 4% of our equity for, for 75K. And we just bought parts and sold them for more money than we paid for them because we were basically at the beginning just serving a community of, of DIY nerds who were into it, like us. And, um, and then we made some prototypes and sold them. You know, we made like 20 machines and we thought that would take a few months to sell and they sold out basically instantly. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, before that, I'd spent like many years on the internet being creative and making stuff and and giving away infrastructure, like all the how-to video stuff. I was, I pioneered all that. And so, and I'd also just, you know, one of the beautiful things about big cities like New York was you could go out every night and see like an entire community. So the whole DIY community could go out and be together. And, you know, I'd been out with, I'd been part of the video blogging community in New York. And, and since it was sort of fresh and new, like in those, in those communities would be all the journalists. So, you know, when we launched MakerBot, I just sent a note out to all my like friends who were journalists being like, Hey, we started a new thing. And they were like, Oh, cool. You've got another new thing. What let's write about it. So we actually sort of just through friendship and, and networking and had an epic launch. So next thing you know, we're in like big trouble, like three guys, a laser cutter and a dream making machines <laughs> and started hiring people. And you know, I'm, I have some experience as a teacher managing 
getting like, at that point, I'm like good at getting 13 year olds to do their homework, but, um, <laughs> being, a employer, a manager, you know, running a company as a whole, those, that was useful like skills, but it's, you know, it was definitely a figure it out by falling on our face kind of approach. Totally. How was bringing that first product to market? You know, what kind of feelings were you feeling? You know, was it a bunch of trepidation and fear and excitement or, you know, how, how did that all go and how did that shake out? So we had committed to this idea that we were going to launch at South by Southwest, like March 12, 2009. And we had started the company in January and we had, and we developed the product in two months and there was very little sleep involved. Like we would just go and, and we weren't engineers. I mean, we were, you know, the two guys we, I started it with were both like super geniuses learning and figuring out stuff and computer science and setting up websites. And so, um, we had, we'd hacked this thing together. It was truly a functional prototype. And then we were like, yeah, it's done. And I'm going to South by Southwest on a plane at 10 AM. And it's like done at 8 AM. Oh, like, Throw it in a box. Let's go. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I didn't have the funds to get a ticket or anything. So we just went to the bars in Austin and printed out shot glasses for the week. And <laughs> that worked. Got a, got a bunch of attention. Next thing we know, we were like slammed with orders and that's, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever had that problem, but it's, you know, people say it's a good problem to have, but it's still like, oh, like we were 12 weeks behind yeah. shipping for like three years. Oof. Now the good part of that is it essentially meant that we didn't like, we'd never used the only, we only used 75 K of our funding. We ended up raising $11.2 million over the course of four years. And we never spent any of that because we had this, we had this mixed problem of we couldn't deliver enough. Like we'd be like, okay, we have to double production. And if you've ever had to do that, it's like, it totally sucks. You have to break all the systems that you have that work for your current set of infrastructure, make it so that new people can do it without screwing it up. And, um, and then by the time we got to there, we'd have to double again. And it was like, we did that because it was just painful to Ooh. grow fast. Yeah. It sounds like it. Are there any things you learned from that continual doubling about building systems that you can share? I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something, I think everybody is sort of looking for systems that looking for the right answer out there. And I think the thing that we ended up realizing is like, we have to figure out something that works with what we've got, even if it's not perfect. Right. So there wasn't a good ERP system at the time. So we made our own, which actually in, in retrospect. We, like, we ended up having to basically put some of our best talent on the software side on like MRP software. Right. Feels like an absolute waste. Yeah. But again, you couldn't probably run the business without it. So it's a, yeah, double-edged sword for sure. So, uh, yeah. So I, the other thing is I, um, we ran it in the first few years, you know, with this sense of, we just ran it very, very lean. Like we didn't, we were running everything. And, you know, we, when you're developing products at the same time that you're shipping products, you're like development costs in general are high for any product. Like in general, if you're developing a product that is a complex electromechanical device, you're either putting in the sweat equity or you're going to spend a bunch of money and a bunch of time sunk into the product. And I think people underestimate that or they downgrade the value of their time because it always ends up when, when you assess it at the end, you're like, wow, we spent a couple million dollars in two years developing that product 
And now we have to figure out how to sell enough of that product to both pay for the current operating costs and pay ourselves back for that development cost before, before, you know, before it gets knocked off. Right. Right. Yeah. I imagine that's a big worry as a, a 3d printing company at that, at the time, you know, trying to just scooping up your design, especially cause you guys were open source for so long or fully open source, I should say. Yeah. And that was so dramatic, right? Like that was, we were, we were definitely, there was a moment where like we got caught in the crosshairs of a bunch of drama. Uh, don't upset open source fanatics if you can help it. And we had been this darling of open source, but we, we started seeing our, our product getting knocked off and companies starting making our exact product. And then when their customers had problems, we're like, oh, well, MakerBot has a support department. Go talk to them. Oh, geez. Oh, so you became everybody's support rather than yep. just your own customers. That's rough. And then, and then we finally, I was like, okay, we're not, this isn't working as well. So we're not going to close anything down. We're just, as we move forward, we're going to make it like, so that we get a little more time to be able to make a product before we get knocked off. And of course that product was the MakerBot Replicator 2. And that was the most knocked off product. 400 companies started up to make exact copies of that. And it was funny, like FlashForge started up and, and we had, you know, when you make something, a lot of times you'll add features that you might need to just, you know, so we injection mold some parts and it was our first time doing that. I'm right next to the train track. So you might hear that in the background. That's the train passing now. And so we had these sort of vestigial features to our parts. And when FlashForge came out with their, with their copy of the Replicator 2, it had all of our vestigial features <laughs> in it, right? Like, so it was like, come on guys. Uh, and so it was one of those things where we had this very idealistic idea that sort of didn't take into account capitalism, right? Like we thought we're going to make stuff. We're going to share everything. Our customers are going to think it's cool. And if they have good ideas, they're going to contribute back to the project. And that'll be the trade, the back and forth trade of we're open and our customers will contribute back. But then once you get to a certain level of complexity to contribute back, takes a pretty epic amount of, of of engineering know-how to dig into that. So, right. It's a very small subset of your community that can even contribute. And then at some point it goes to zero and you're like, okay, this, this deal didn't work out. And yeah. then at that time, I, the guys who ran GitHub did a, a, a post that was basically like open source, everything, except what you need to do to protect your company and make money. And I was like, oh crap. Well, and you know, our sort of, but we were these idealistic guys at the beginning who were just like, let's see if we can end money by creating a machine that will make anything and people won't need factories anymore because they'll just have them and they won't need money anymore because they can just make the things that they're good at making and trade them. We really believed this in the right. beginning, right? Very Star Trek of you guys. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's the last thing that we have in our society from Star Trek that we haven't done is the, the sort of, uh, the absence of money, of, of money. But, um. Then, then capitalism happens, right? So then you're like, okay, well, we, uh, for, uh, so open source is awesome. I love open source projects. I love supporting them when I can. And, and I think for software, the model is usually like, okay, we're going to do something open source. Then we'll have like, we'll pay people pay for support. And then in hardware, it's usually done in a, like, we're going to do this thing as academics and we want other people to take it on afterwards because we don't have a financial interest in making this a product or we're doing a Kickstarter and who knows what'll happen. So we're going to make it open source so that people feel like if it all goes to crap, they'll at least have the source material, right? The people who do it really well are Adafruit. So they make like new products every week and have like many, many tens of thousands of products that 
they crank out and develop and, and their products are like building blocks of other products. So it makes a lot of sense for them to be open. And I think, uh, I'd still like to see somebody succeed at doing very, very large scale open source hardware product and have it succeed for the long time, for the long term. But well, well, like you said, it sounds, it sounds like you would have to do years of preparation so that you have the entire ecosystem kind of come out all at once to be able to sustain a business like that for long enough. You'll create the market share immediately, cut off all duplicators and yeah. be able to subsist that way. But I mean, then we shifted and we started making, you know, the, the replicator two came out and then we had our fifth gen come out. And, you know, in the middle of there, my favorite product that I ever made was the, the, the maker. Well, it's not my favorite product. My favorite MakerBot product. We made a, a scanner and we just crushed this product into market. We developed it in like six months. It was just a, people had been saying like, oh, well, you have a 3D printer. Well, you need a scanner so that people who aren't into CAD can duplicate things. And so we did it. And then nobody bought that. Like zero people, like almost zero people bought that. Right. So, right. Uh, sometimes people tell you what they want and then they don't buy it. It's also like, ah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I think even still now, there's a lot of confusion around. They're like, oh, I want a scanner. And they don't realize a scanner doesn't create a solid body that's perfect. <laughs> like there's still yeah. so much post-processing in a CAD, CAD system that it's required. Yeah, I have. So, you know, my hot, one of my passions is for, for you know, machine-made art. And I love plotters. That's one of my, I, I love plotters. I love pen plotters so much. And uh, my pandemic art project was scanning everybody that I met, which was not very many people because we were locked down and, and then making these, using the phone as a scanner, which has a pretty awesome, the face scanner in the, in the iPhone, really awesome scanner for like, you know, plus, you know, with, you know, plus or minus a millimeter, but, right, um, right. <laughs> yeah. but you know, totally recognizable human scanner. So I had a lot of fun. Scanners are cool. So you were, you know, guys releasing the, the two and Gen 5 and all of that. How was the process of taking the company public? Because I imagine, you know, starting as a small LLC and kind of growing to that point, it yeah. must have been kind of a lot of uncomfortable conversations and, and new oh, things. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were in the process. Of, so we sold, I sold the company to Stratasys. We sold it, to be fair. I had a whole leadership team. So a few years in, I realized we had to like hire people who'd been there, done that because we the pace that we were going at, we couldn't really afford to, to keep making our mistakes towards progress. You know, there's like, we can talk a little bit about engineering. There's, I think it's interesting. We started out do, doing engineering by like trying to make it as cheap as possible using the crappiest components and seeing if they worked. And oftentimes being surprised that they were much better components for the price than we expected. And if you're oftentimes that there's a different engineering process where you go like, oh, I have to make something. What are the specs? What are the tolerances? I'm going to make sure I buy all the components that are, will allow me to end up successful on the first try. And that usually costs like 10 times as much as the process of building crappy stuff, less crappy over and over again. Right. <laughs> right. I love that about the. The process of there's multiple ways to innovation, yeah, but I'm definitely. getting a little distracted. So we, uh, so I had a term sheet in hand to basically get us the amount of money we needed to go public. And in the middle of that, Stratasys reached out and was like, Hey, we'd like to buy you. How about like for nothing? And we were like, Hey, we're no, we're actually like a growing company that like, here's a, we even have a term sheet for that makes us worth like, 
you know, for $50 million on a 300 pre valuation. So like, or, and those investors know they're going to get like 10 X their money back. So like we're on our way here. And they were like, oh, we thought you were cute. <laughs> we don't think you're cute anymore. You actually are like coming, kind of coming for us. Right. right. And oh my um, goodness. so those negotiations were wild. And, and the sort of original goal was that with Stratasys had this epic distribution and sales infrastructure. And we, with MakerBot, we were all essentially, we had distributors, but we were essentially all organic driven by culture, storytelling, and media exposure. You know, it was, we, we had this beautiful window of time where if we wanted to, we would just do press releases every week about the stuff our customers were doing with our machine. Oh, prosthetic arms. Yeah. Let's do press releases about that. Cool. Oh. That, that, you know, it was just every, we could just crank stuff out because we had, a, you know, people were just doing, our customers were just doing really cool stuff. Right. Um, so when they were talking about acquiring you, did you get the sense that they were most interested in entering the, like, entry market for 3D printers? Or was it a, a lot of it also Thingiverse and having, because I, I know, I remember after you guys got bought that they immediately, you know, you could send any model to Shapeways now through, you know, a thing of hers. Yeah. And, and like, that was one of the first, I think, print 3D printing services or large scale 3D printing services I had ever seen at that point. So I think one of the sort of challenges that were sort of a mismatch of cultures between Stratasys and MakerBot was MakerBot was driven to empower customers at the lowest possible price. And Stratasys was set up to make the most money from customers that were trapped in their system, right? So their filament costs right. like $300 a roll and our filament costs like $30 a roll. It's basically the same material. Right. Um, but theirs had like, you know, an RFID chip that wouldn't let you put, you know, our material in their machines. So it's, you know, you had a really different approach and, you know, they had, and as a public company had like 61% margin, which is just, whoa massive right That's and they were like crazy. we need you to have 61 percent margins and we were like we could go for 50 but it, to do that we're gonna actually have to just cut everyone that's not sales and they were like yeah let's do okay. it let's go for margins so we had built up the, also just this cultural behemoth that could you know we were growing it somewhere between 200 and 300 percent a year as a startup high growth startup and stratasys at that time was like really excited if they had like a six percent growth a year right as a large company with like, you know, close to a billion dollars in revenue. That was, a, that's a more, like, that's a more, a more sane, mature <laughs> yeah. approach. That's scalable. That's yeah. 100%. So the, the sort of, the thing that I hoped to happen was there would be this ability to get to scale and that we would be able to take advantage of a lot of the maturity that they had. And it, it didn't end up panning out exactly like that, but, and now Stratasys and Ultimaker just put $60 million into their new Ultimaker MakerBot startup thing. And I, I'm really curious. I, I, you know, the teams at both these companies are full of super smart people. So I'm very curious to see what they do with $60 million yeah, to try and, and to re-enter the market, right? I think that the consumer level printer market is going to be really spicy for the next couple of years. Yeah. Like I, I just, you know, I, I think a couple months ago got that new bamboo printer. Me too. And like that's going to force all of these other companies to revolutionize like they've been kind of resting on the laurels of past models for so long and then you know this is the first printer i've been able to just be like oh yeah i'll just print something like i don't have to worry about it I print overnight i don't have to like 
there's never the thought of like, what if I wake up to spaghetti everywhere? It's just like, it's done in the morning. And so to see where all of these other companies go towards that goal is going to be really, really interesting. I mean, I've, I have a fleet of a dozen MakerBot Replicator 2s that I've just been brutalizing for the last decade. I love these things. And I just replaced it with one bamboo X1 Carbon. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, and the thing just cranked. And I, it's, you know, in some ways, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's sort of everything I wanted, you know, to exist in 2013. You know, it's got the LiDAR, checks the first layer for flatness. It's really rad. Uh, but it has zero of the like, oh, it's broken. I'm going to fix it sort okay. of <laughs> mentality because it's just working. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be super interesting. I, I think I love seeing little paradigm shifts like that kind of force the rest of a community to like step it up. And yep, I think that, yep. that's what this is. So, Agree. so you sold, you sold the Stratasys in 2013. Yep. How long after that did you exit? So I, I was on, so I, I was on the hook for three years. And I, the challenge was by the time we were, we had exited, I had hired this just amazing superstar team where everybody was good at what they did. I had an awesome sales team, awesome innovation team, great R and D awesome. Like the support team was like top notch. We had like, and everything was working really well. And, and I wasn't, when you, at some point I was like, hi, I'm kind of. I'm CEO, but I'm bored. Like this is, like, I, I, I'm used to doing everything and now I'm doing, I've hired everybody to do everything and now I'm doing nothing. So I ended up spinning out a workshop called the Bold Machines Workshop and basically was like, hey, Stratasys has all these rad machines. You know, they'd merged with Object and they, 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 they had a ton of really rad stuff in R&D. And I was like, let me start a workshop that just does cool stuff with all the machines nobody's heard about. And they were like, oh, yeah, let's do that. So they were down with that. So I did that. But then, you know, when I started MakerBot, the stock of Stratasys was like $20 a share. And by the time they bought MakerBot in an all-stock deal, it was $80 a share. Whoa. And then within a year, went up to like 135 And then, and just like on track with the Gartner hype cycle, which is like things go up and get super hyped and and then they crash and then they work their way back up into relevance on a much more rational footing. Right. So then the Gardner hype cycle kicked in and the stock went to like, I don't know, 16, 20, oh. somewhere 26, Gee. went back to where it had been. Right. So the company went from like being worth $8 billion and able to raise money on a dime to, to, you know, less than a billion dollars, which is just for, as a public company, a huge amount of drama because what happens in there, there's a whole world of, of lawyers that love to get involved in this. And they're like, well, this clearly happened because you did something and didn't tell people about it. And they use that opportunity to go in there and interview all the ex-employees who have a grudge. And, um, there's my train. <laughs> um, yeah. So I feel like I got the, I got the full entrepreneur experience. We started in a garage. We grew really, really fast to get to about 600 employees. We sold the company. I dealt with all the ins and outs of a public company, learned a ton about just how large amounts of money work in the world. Like when I started MakerBot, I knew what a hundred dollars could do. And then I, after being at MakerBot, I knew what thousands of dollars could do. And right. then by the end of MakerBot, I knew what millions of dollars could do in the world as, as a resource. And then with Stratasys, I knew what like tens, 
of millions of dollars could do <laughs> as a resource. And there's people who go a lot farther, fly a lot higher than me, who know what like hundreds of millions and maybe billions of dollars do as a as a as a having as a resource that you might have. So, but I got so, a, I would say I got a pretty full experience with MakerBot. Well, so let me ask you this. I mean, we haven't gotten to the Bantam side of it, yeah, but we got to get to that too. <laughs> um, but as someone who has been under public fire or ire, you know, both at I would say that any kind of entry level CNC automatically gets a oh, lot yeah. of shit. Um, oh, I think yeah. that that's kind of just you know you, you, any of the companies. It seems like, and I, I think it's kind of unique to machining, where like machinists will judge you like in no other like you know race car drivers aren't going out of their way to comment on go-kart videos and say like this is the worst thing i've ever seen because it doesn't compare to my race car but machinists are for sure going to go on to bantam tool youtube videos and you know do whatever they can to, to say how displeased they are so as somebody who's kind of dealt with all of this you know with the going closed on MakerBot and now Bantam Tools. Do you have any tips and tricks on how to kind of handle criticism? You know, I think it, if you're leading a company and dealing with, with criticism or you're at a company and there's criticism, I think it's a very individual journey in many ways, like based on like, if you have like, uh, if your self-esteem is based on other people's perception, or if you've built up a strong sense of self-esteem based on, on some sort of resiliency. Right. So I've definitely been beat up in many different ways in the public, in the public eye. And the sort of reality is like, I'm just who I am trying to do my best and be as fair as I possibly can while trying to bring new things out into the world, which is not easy. And the CNC world is a particularly tricky one because, you know, first CNC really starts to emerge in like 1958 when G code is born and we're still using that same G code. It's one of the first programming languages and we're still, like, <laughs> you, there's some modifications to it, but it's really very, you know, solid, right? Yeah. As, as a, as, as, as a thing. And people buy large industrial CNCs with the expectation they're going to last hopefully 20 or 30 years. Right. I mean, that's. Oh yeah. Yeah. At it's, least. Yeah. Right? I've had and, many 20 plus year old machines and they still make great parts. So when you, if you have any sort of shop and you have a, a group of employees trained on those machines and you buy new machines, if everything's changed, it's a huge, it could take you down for some number of months to get up and run, running on those, on the new version of your old machine. So there's a high motivation in the industry to, to stay the same, right? Like it's, it's pretty unique that way. I mean, I have to buy a new phone because like the battery stops working every couple of years. Right. But if you told me I had to, you know, replace my 2013 Mazax, I'd be up in your grill being like, no way they're going to go another 10, <laughs> 20 years. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really different sense of time, which I think in some ways inhibits the collective industry's ability to innovate because we don't want new things if we can help it. We, we maybe want better things, but maybe right. not different. Yeah. Well, so, so to go back, so you sure. left MakerBot. How did you find Bantam? How did this whole story, story start? So I, I, I created a workshop after Maker, after I left MakerBot and called Brie & Co. And had, I think, about eight employees. And I just wanted to make cool stuff, basically. Like, I wanted to make stuff worth making. And there's a very, you know, I went from, you know, being a 
not very well compensated teacher who still wanted to make things. And I, if I needed a new drill press, I would like save for a couple months and get one to now being able to just get tools that pretty much get tools that I wanted. Right. So I built out a workshop. I, uh, when MakerBot moved their facility from Brooklyn to China, I bought the Haas VF3 off MakerBot and we started making stuff and it was, you know, if you've ever, for folks who haven't spent a lot of on your, I mean, I think your, your listener base has spent time with CNC's, but yeah. for those who are listening, who haven't spent time with CNC's, CNC's are enchanting. Like you, your first time walking into a room and there's one or more C large format industrial CNC's in there, or even a small bantam tool CNC, frankly, you look at that and you're like, what is happening here? This is like, you know, it's a magic sort of experience. There was a block of material in there. Now there's a part. Or yeah. part of well, a part. Or, dramatic. It's throwing yeah. chips. There's coolant. There's, you know, sound. There's all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when the founder of, at the time it was called Other Machine Company, reached out and was like, hey, we haven't been able to become profitable and we, um, we have enough money to shut this thing down or sell it. Can you make some intros? And I talked to Danielle Applestone for about an hour and I was like, hey, this is a really nice company that you've built. It's got integrity it's got a commitment to precision and reliability and i like it can i i know you asked me if, i know i know she had asked me for introductions can i make an offer she was like why not i mean not here we go yeah give it a go so i made an offer and uh and then she went her and then you know the investors wanted her to go shop it around as well so I also made all the introductions in industry because I had bought and sold companies in that world and knew who did acquisitions at Autodesk at that time, investor and friend with Dan over at Glowforge and that whole crew. So like I wanted what was best for the company and nobody else was interested in it. So I bought it. And one of the challenges beginning there was it was called the other machine company. It was called the other mill. And when you would ask somebody what kind of mill they had, they'd be like, I have the other mill. <laughs> so you had like a who's on first problem. And so. All of our customers had like three or four sentences to get through when they would talk about our machines. That would sort of be an obstacle to them getting to the exciting part about what the machine does, trying to explain that the sort of Laurel Hart and Hardy skit around. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure that's one of those things that seemed incredibly funny upon starting the, the company and then yes. just terrible once you got into it. So we did a little bunch of, bunch of research and we tried to find, you know, the namespace is very dense now. It's very hard to come up with the name of a new company and have it connect to the company. So, um, I, I, you know, I had, I'd had chickens when I was younger and Danielle at the time was a big fan of like, just the sort of resiliency that comes when you have chickens. And we wanted to get a name of something that was small and powerful because our machines, you know, that's where we make this 80 pound and now 40 pound machine that that hold good tolerances and are powerful machines, but you know, don't weigh literal tons. So the Bantam name was born and it, we've just been running with it ever since. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's get into what machinery you guys have. I know Murph's, Murph's machine asked, can the desktop milling machine really hold plus or minus one thou? I love this question. So, um, we sort of, what we tell people is we don't tolerancing, tolerancing means is the, is your part the size that you expect it to be? And so if it's a really big part or a really small part, it's, you can expect to hold different tolerances over it. And we have a particularly challenge, a big challenge here because most 
industrial CNC companies solve tolerances with tons of cast iron and minimum parts by integrating as many features into that cast iron as possible so that there's minimum tolerance stack up in the assembly of the machine. So in general, we tell people that it'll hold two tolerant, two, two thou across six inches. And, uh, but we have people making watch parts with our machine who are holding a much, much tighter tolerance. And, you know, similarly, like on our Mazax, we hold a, a, we have a bore that where we hold two, two tenths and that, that took us months to dial in. So like we could, so there's sort of like tolerance, like easy tolerances. I would say if you care about super high tolerances and you're making ultra precision things and you don't have the time to dial it in, you're going to need to buy a machine, that, you know, go buy a Kern. Right. You know? I love, I want a Kern. Yeah, I want, I mean, I'd love to have a fleet of Kerns. Kerns, those things are so awesome. Like they explained to me how their sort of linear rails work and they're, they're like riding on some sort of like oil. They're yeah. like, yeah, I don't know. Ways. Yeah. Yes. Oh my yeah. God. Well, so, yeah, their whole approach to it, you know, being on aluminum, all of the casting, yeah. the stuff being on aluminum because they're like, well, you know, we'll just deal with the thermals. We, we don't, you know, yeah. we don't throw cast iron at it. We just put the material we know how to uh, compensate for it. And yeah, it, it, it's very cool. So um, then who so, is your target demographic? Who, who are you trying to sell this to? Because I think that that's one thing that does create a lot of this backlash in sure. the, the beginner CNC community is that maybe people think that it's for them when really it's not. So I think, you know, in the machinist world, which is a lot of your listeners, we generally, when we sell to a machine shop, we're selling to, they either need a machine to make a prototype or make prototypes so that they can have a small machine they can make, you make stuff with that doesn't interrupt their big machines, right? Knock stuff out. You know, we're sort of in the John Henry category where we've made it easy to set up a part and machine, a, you know, a three axis milling operation. You know, we, it's easier to program a part and get a part started on our machine than a big machine. So we get ahead that way, but definitely it takes a multiplier of time to actually do the machining. The parts aren't very big. So, you know, in general, a part will take anywhere up to a couple hours, which isn't a bad thing. So our customers, that the other way we sell into machine shops is when people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing and they would rather destroy a small machine. So like folks who do carbon fiber, we had a guy make coins out of rocks that he collected from the set of star Wars. And then, uh, and he <laughs> was milling cool. rock, but you know, come on, like that, you, you know, the, yeah, the I'm dust from that wrecks everything. Yeah. Wrecks everything. Yeah, totally. So there's sort of a daredevil, the daredevils of machining are really the ones who are using our, 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 in the machine shop world. And they're not our, our primary target customer. But they do it anyway because they, they see our machine at the like $6,500 price point as like disposable. Folks who are making stuff for EDM machines, you know, that, that, that carbon, the graphite thing that, blocks, the, the yeah. graphite blocks, like they're used, those folks are used, used to buying $100,000 machines and they will destroy them within three years and they just get a new one and they, it's a, their big machines are write-offs and they get our machines for the small pieces and they're like really happy because yeah, we've built it to be resilient, so it'll last a little bit longer, but there you go. Right. Uh, our primary customers are in education and in, in patient engineers. So, you know, our Bantam Tools desktop CNC milling machine is set up for, you know, has a seven by nine by three and a half inch build volume, which 
when we, we, we reached out to a company that does a, a ton of on-demand orders and connects machine shops to people. And we found out that basically that build volume is about half of the parts that they have go through their system. So we were oh, like, wow. actually, that, that's a lot of, a lot of people can meet their needs with that build volume. We don't have a tool changer. You have to do manual swap outs of tool and an ER11 call it that'll do up to a quarter inch tooling. And single flute's best because you can do high speed and still get all the, and get all, it's nice. And it's better, you know, high step over, low step down so that you, you take advantage of all the high speed machining stuff. And so impatient engineers are, are used to like trying to get stuff off zometry or, and you know, we've done a bunch of zometry work and it's, it's interesting, but it's, you don't get the benefit of communication with the customer. So it can be very tricky. And so a lot, you know, our, our inpatient engineers sometimes have gotten parts made by people and they haven't been what they expected. And it took, you know, six weeks. And then, you know, we get calls from engineers who are like, Hey, I am behind schedule. My boss is down my throat. I can, I'm going to figure this out, but can you please ship me a machine today? And we're like, yeah, we got you. Right. Um, and they, they're making prototype parts. So one of the cool things about that is like, we've sold, we sell to all the innovation companies, you know, SpaceX, we sell the, we're in, we're on all the branches of the military. We're in NASA, we're in, we're in GE, we're in all these cool companies, but they're making prototypes. So like, nobody knows. Right. Yeah. Like, we don't even know what they're doing or something, desk right? or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then we sell the educators, which is, you know, close to my heart and that. It's sort of the beauty of that is the machine, whether you buy the Explorer at 40 pounds or the desktop at 80, you're, you can, you can lift it off a table and stick it in the closet when you're done with your, your, when you're done with right. your project. Done machining, yeah. And, and it also, because it's enclosed and it's safe and you, you have to work really hard to wreck this machine. It's, it's, it's a resilient machine for students to get up and running on. That's great. So that's, that's where we're at. I think the other thing I want to mention is, you know, it's pretty easy to make a machine that's very expensive and very heavy and hold ultra high tolerances like that. You, if you have infinity resources and your customers have the resources to buy that, you, that's <laughs> achievable. Yes. We do this thing where we have so many tricks that we have to, and so many clever things that we have to bundle into the machine to make it so we can sell it at our price point and have the performance that we want to get out of it and, and claim professional, professional results that it's, uh, it's, we're really proud of it. I mean, we, we, we ended up developed this machine, you know, there's like, it's a lot of parts that go together and each part has a tolerance. And so, you know, when you put it all together, you might expect it to not be work like that well, but we built it so that once it's all put together, we can dial it in and we spend like two hours on each machine dialing it in and getting it just really right <laughs> and and that i'm really pr i'm really proud of our machines i think um i i and our users are we, we have a good group of users that i that I'm, I'm proud to be associated with too that's great let's talk about pricing a desktop machine that's because you guys make mm -hmm. the large majority of it here in america because I know Gamble Garage had mentioned that he felt like maybe you were pricing yourselves out of the market for the same size and power category. So how did you guys go about pricing it? How does that all work? You know, I imagine that making a anything CNC or G code based in America is kind of not the usual path for at least a, a desktop CNC. So how does that all work? 
I mean, I think you come up with an idea and then you see if you can do it. And then when it doesn't work, you, you, you figure a way around it. So like we looked into very cheap ball screws, right? Cause you know, you can spend, you can spend a lot of money on one ball screw or you can spend not a lot of money on a ball screw that now super affordable ones. And usually they're the ones that are like out of spec and they get, and, and we found that basically like, so our steppers are double stack with a, with an integrated Acme screw into it. That is, uh, that's very high precision. That's, that's higher precision than the low end ball screws. And we were like, but we really would love to be able to say there's ball screws in it. Cause that's sort of like, a that makes the pleasure centers go off in, a, right. in, a, in the brain of an engineer. Or an yeah. It's a, a buzzword a for sure. Yeah. But they didn't have the same performance. So we went with the thing that had the best performance. We looked into doing, uh, you know, we, we run our machine on rods, very high precision rods. And it's interesting, like the tolerance on the rod is like a thou, but when, with each batch we get each set of rods, they're all exactly the same to the 10th. Now oh, they're within good, the top. Now another batch will be in this, will not be the exact same 10th, but they're all within the same. And it allows us to rely on something that is much more affordable is, you know, dollars instead of hundreds of dollars for the rods, but, and still get great results. So we do a lot. And then, you know, in machining, we end most, a lot of our parts, I'd probably say 80% of our parts come out of a, what we call a jigsaw approach where we have two 20 by 20 sheets of, um, of cast aluminum because the rolled aluminum would release too much tension and deform. And we cut all of our parts out of most of the parts in the Bantam Tools desktop CNC come out of that, that jigsaw approach. For the Explorer, we did a different thing where we shifted to bent steel. Like we have a lot of the, the structural reinforcement of the machine is from bent steel, but we hold the tolerances by having precision aluminum parts sort of force the bent steel into the right position to be able to hold the rigidity. So there's a bunch of like really clever origami in our, in the new Bantam Tools Explorer to make it weigh half as much as the desktop, but still have all the performance. So good stuff. They use a smaller motor, so it's, a, it's you know, cutting speeds are lower, but still good stuff. Okay, awesome. Let's see, Fidget Things asked, you guys have a desktop mill, but will yep. we see the much forgotten lathe or maybe bringing five axis to your tools? So we have a fourth axis accessory, which I wouldn't put in the same category as our mill. I would put it more as an educator's accessory, although some people use it and get amazing results. I would say by default, it is, is, it is a, it is, it is a good thing for learning on five axis. I would love, we just got our first five axis machine in the shop. We just got a, an older brother with an A and B in it. Oh, cool. And, and we just got that, that just went under power in the last week or so. And we're just wrapping our heads around how to go from our standard way of thinking in three axes to five. Um, I would say for five axis, I would send people to pocket NC. they came to uh, their friends of ours. And you know, the, one of the nice things about being a small industry is like, look, we all know each other and stick up for each other and are sort of on the, on, on general, like on the general team of like, let's empower people with more affordable machines kind of group. And so I'd send people to pocket NC. their machine that they've been in development for a, a while now, which is sort of a more professional level machine like their machine is you know under ten thousand dollars now but the one they're working on will probably be 50 or 60. 
yeah, the solo so, looks it's really so cool. rad. Oh my yeah. god! And yeah, then I had Matt on a couple months before IMTS and getting to talk to him and pick up his brain about that whole thing. It seems really cool. Matt and Michelle are just the best. Um, so, and then for a lathe, you know, I I I've thought about it a lot, and you know, one of our my processes that I sort of make it to here go through is like okay if we're going to explore this let's get what's out there and see where it stands right so got we had a sureline that we had we had used which was i would say sureline is really good for people who want to make like railroad type stuff like model railroad stuff and the, they have an amazing museum that i have to get to in my lifetime that i've never that where they've got like small machinists they've got like miniature ferrari engines and all this kind of stuff like sureline's rad oh wow i had no in idea california yeah and then there's then my um then there's the tag and i ha so i have a tag lathe this thing is amazing i love the tag crew and really the, yeah i i will say the um i couldn't so they've got like controller that runs mach 3 and if you like that great and if you find that to be difficult you'll you'll find another way um <laughs> we just plugged our own controller into it a bantam tools controller into it and we're really we're really i'm just you know i uh, i made this is audio you can't see it when you're listening but i made these <laughs> tops on oh, the lathe out of brass yeah they're great i i uh so i would love to come out with a lathe the the challenge is that you know i think i think i get myself in trouble a little bit because the lathe that I want to make would, would be probably at like the $10,000 level. And I, there's sort of a, I'm definitely creeping up with our machines into sort of no man's land of like, there's a lot of, a lot of our customers are like, okay, it does that. It does that. It costs that much. Yes. Great. I think for the hobbyist, they're like, well, I, I can get something much cheaper that looks like it's the same size and they don't, maybe don't understand the, the, the sort of the the sort of precision maybe they don't care about precision right and they're fine getting something afford, much more affordable that's fine we have this thing where we hold ourselves to a high standard and it sort of creeps the price up a little bit right so i think uh if like so i guess he's asking like where is it and i'm like i want it but i haven't been able to talk myself into developing it because you know development of a new machine in general takes a group of engineers here at Bantam Tools, you know, say two years, and and I I I'm a little skeptical that there would be a, a market for it. Will I maybe someday do it anyway? Probably. <laughs> we'll keep Is it happening right now? It. Not now. Not now. Okay. But uh, let's see. Riley Gilman asked, "Do you still have the rally fighter he helped you build?" <laughs> oh my gosh! So I was both a huge fan and an investor in local motors that made this rally fighter car. These are just, these were in the transformers movies and then they're in one of the fast and furious movies. It is just an absurd car and it's car made for the Baja to run the Baja 1000, which, um, I thought I wanted to do until I heard stories of people who had run it and the local motors crew had run the Baja 1000. And one of the things that happens is the locals set up booby traps because that's kind of their entertainment is to is to try and kill the people on the race and the local motors crew had a breakdown right away and fixed it but we're like five hours behind everybody so they had all their lights on blazing you know and the Baja 1000 is not on road so they're just 
And this thing is made to go like 80 miles an hour over not road terrain. And they're barreling through. And normally when you get to a, when it's, when you're running the race and you come upon a, a booby trap, there's like people hanging out waiting to watch, see what happens. There's a number of signals that say, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. And of course it was the middle of the night. So they missed all that. And they hit a giant pile of tires covered in a rug and then a bunch of dirt flipped the car over a couple times oh, to the geez. credit. I think the car just kept going. I mean, the thing is like a Tonka <laughs> truck, right? It's built to just like, you know, yeah. So I, uh, I went to local motors and built a rally fighter. I really enjoyed the team there and building it. I then had it delivered to the Northeast and the Northeast is, you know, an old place where all the roads sort of replaced horse trails and the rally fighter is nine feet wide. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a big big car there's a, a few of them in tucson and you know because you know uh local motors is right in phoenix and so yeah, yeah there are every time you see them you're like oh I, I can see that from quite some quite a ways off so you might see my rally fighter there because i have a friend who runs a company called zero mass source water they make uh they make uh solar panels that dehumidify water out of the air for drinking and i i was like cody I need to return the rally fighter to its natural habitat, which is Arizona. <laughs> so he's got my rally fighter out there. When I get out there, I, I uh, will we'll go out and play with it. Awesome. Well, I know Riley and then also Cyrus Lloyd, Silo's Garage, both were talking about how, you know, seeing you or meeting you was kind of their first introduction to 3D printing and manufacturing. And so I wanted to relay that because I thought that was a really cool story. You know, let's talk a little bit about manufacturing and the state of manufacturing in the U.S. and the world, right? Like, it yeah. is a, let's dig into that. Well, so I actually had a question for you about that. Um, you know, you've been kind of at the forefront or the beginning of two very large democratizations of tech. You know, first 3D printing, and now I feel like manufacturing in general is kind of getting that spark with, you know, Fusion 360 and, yeah. you know, tools like that that now let, you know, anybody can go to YouTube and learn how to program a CNC now. So, yeah. you know, what are your thoughts on that? And then what do you see as the next step in the, all of this? You know, I, um, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, a bit of a, bit of a gearhead taking auto shop classes in high school, as well as drafting classes back in the eighties. Right. And I had a Jeep, which meant that I was always fixing it. <laughs> and, uh, I think a couple of things happened in our culture in the education space. So in the Clinton era, they came out with this program that targeted low income and people of color to get them into the trades. And they had no bones about basically saying like, okay, you people who are not going to be white collar workers, we're going to funnel you into this. And those people were like, no, that's not cool. We're going to, you're sort of shoehorning us into low income jobs, not cool. And the language that went around with that turned educate started to turn education off to manufacturing and then we had in the george bush era we had no child left behind where and i was a teacher who lived through that and i saw all the shop classes that had hung on until like 2000 by 2001 2002 they were gone they just like and there's still some out there and like to any shop class teachers out there now i love you i want to support you thank you for doing your work there's so many young people who want to get their hands dirty and wrench on things and make things. And you're one of the, those people are, are some of the people who are 
lifesavers for those kids who are otherwise potentially not great at other parts of school that we value a lot more as a society. And I just want to, I want, I want the young people who have the affinity to, to be in, to make things, to feel embraced. So, oh yeah. Yeah. I, um, I know the high school I went to, they were, they called themselves, you know, a college prep high school. And so we didn't have shop, but we did right. have theater productions. And so that's what I went into because I could still build stuff. You know, we made yeah. all the sets, we made all the the lighting and it's like, well, you know, if I'm going to get my making bug fixed at school, it's got to be this class. So yeah, it was, it, it was unfortunate that we didn't have auto shop and machine shop and all of that. Programming those lighting controllers is not that different from. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So I think one of the things that'll be interesting is we're in the zone where maybe for the last 10 years, we've talked about how important it is that we rebuild our manufacturing sector as a country. And that's usually in the context of because it costs a lot of money to be in the United States in comparison to other places. And because of the healthcare system that we have and our sort of commitment to, to corporate capitalism and, and, and that sort of stuff. If you want to get into machining, the likelihood is that you're going to end up working on either on medical devices or military projects. The idea that the U S can, has the workforce to make consumer products when other, when globally there's other competition for that at a, both lower prices and, and with more governmental support seems low. Yeah. But I think that definitely. that will, there's a couple of things that could change that. One is people like you telling the story of machinists and getting out to, how do we tell the story to the general public that machining, manufacturing, making things is valued by our culture? Like we got to do that. Like that's well, go team. Like I'm on that team. The other big thing that I think will happen is if China invades Taiwan, then our relationship with China will sour even more. And we could be looking at like Walmart being empty because so many things from China that are there, so many low, low cost regular consumer goods come over in boxes from China, right? And if that stopped, we would have a very interesting crisis in the U.S. Now, the Taiwan is one of the, the, one of the best democracies. It's up there with Estonia as the best democracies. We're like level three democracy. They're not level one, but they have the problem of like the, the super awesome freaking democracy and China thinks that they're part of China. <laughs> so. We're going to see that play out and how that plays out, I think will have a lot to do with the future of manufacturing in the U.S. You, you're probably the first person I've seen to have a silver lining for China invading Taiwan. I think that it's such a shame that we label manufacturing as blue collar because it's not that. Yeah. I don't think that it's that anymore. It's, you know, somebody had told me what true manufacturing was when I was in high school or, you know, early in college. I wouldn't have had to go through the hoops I jumped through or like yeah. the, the, the trail I went through to get to it. I would have been like, that's what I want to do. That's all the cool stuff. Yeah. That, like, let me get on that. And so, yeah, it's, it's a shame that we've labeled it like this. And, you know, I, I've said it on the podcast a few times, like my only exposure to machinist was like Christian Bale's the machinist movie for like the longest, you know, that was the only time I'd heard that word and yeah. it's this dark, dreary, terrible place. And you're like, oh, great. I don't want to do that. When really it's just, it's so cool and so much fun. And, and like you said, it's so dramatic. It like you, you watch a CNC machine and it's just hypnotic sometimes. It's also for people who get the dopamine in their brain from solving problems. It is like heaven, right? You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so cool. Yeah. I think there's a, a interview with Tim Cook at some point, going back to your point of uh, 
countries not or countries that are more supportive of machining and they asked something along the lines of like why aren't you making iphones here and he said well you know I, I could ask for all of the manufacturing engineers in the u.s and we might fill up a couple rooms like the one we're in right now and he's like we go to china and i can fill up stadiums full of manufacturing engineers yeah and it's like that that's why because they just have the people that are into the trade you know we're really good as a culture at telling stories and creating entertainment and i would like to see i would love to see more entertain entertainment around manufacturing i think that the entertainment industry could take that challenge on and really do a great job with that and i think it would do one might be you know it's one of the ways that we turn things around in our country is by telling stories about it like that Oh, yeah. Well, as you said, you know, people learn so much better from the TV than they do yeah. from a person in front of them very often. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, that brings me on to shop news and new things. Are there any new machines or accessories that are coming out soon? Ooh. Well, let me tell you. So we're pretty excited. So one of the things that so I think in general in industry in general, it's slow in January and February. We use that time this year to open up our shop and make parts for our friends and so our colleagues and, and folks. And one of the interesting things is, uh, so we just got a Nakamura used Nakamura dual spindle, dual turret, live tooling, insane machine with a bar feeder. Oh, cool. This thing is crazy. So that's we're um, uh, we're just getting our heads around that now. And then we just, uh, I mentioned the brother, we just got the five axis brother. So. Works internally, we're exploring, we're expanding our capabilities so that we can, when we imagine the things we want to make, we just have a, a wider, a broader tool set to make things with. The thing that I think I could tell, tell you that in my personal life, I'm most interested in plotters, as I mentioned before. So I just, uh, I love, this was one plotter made in 1985 by HP called the HP 7550. And I have. I've bought all of them that have arrived on eBay in the last five years. I bought one <laughs> and I have a fleet of them and I ended up, uh, I'm so obsessed with this machine. I tracked down the HP engineers that worked on it in the seventies and eighties. Oh, cool. And I expected to nerd out with them about, um, about the, the grit wheel that they developed to move paper forward and backwards which transformed the paper moving industry and the, a part of the pen changer that had a part called the, the moth tongue, which was this ultra high precision part that would allow them to transfer a pen back and forth without, without any, uh, mechanically without any, any other input. And what ended up happening is they just talked about the culture at HP and how inspired they were by it, how much they missed it and how much they loved it. So I've been sort of by nerding out about, uh, plotters and art making machines, I accidentally found myself down this rabbit hole of like, what does innovation look like in a company and how does that work? And HP sort of, these guys all didn't, they all got hired right out of college. They didn't know anything different. They went into these spaces where they were basically told, do this insanely cool thing that doesn't exist yet, figure it out. Then they were given all the resources to actually do it. They each had a desk that they worked at and a bench right behind them. And they were all in rooms just filled with people that had benches. So there was something they called the other, the other bench if effect, which was, you'd see what other people were doing and be like, oh man, I got to up my game. <laughs> and 
They all went to like little, their kids' little leagues together and became really close friends. A lot of them learned how to fly airplanes and they would like either share or, 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 or get into like having a, you know, there was sort of like a bunch of Cessna pilots involved and they, they created a community that was deeply respectful and very, very powerful from the innovative side. Like I heard the story of, of how they found a guy to work on the plotter project who was just totally obsessive about solving problems. And he ended up being the guy who pioneered all the innovation on inkjet stuff. So they, part of it was they found the people and they didn't know, like they didn't know inkjet was the future. They, but they had hired people and saturated the culture in such a way that the inkjet naturally came out. And, um, so I guess that's, that, that's, I'm obsessed. That's my current obsession is with art machines, pen plotters and sort of the, the history there. Well, so you brought up actually a good question. What things did you learn from MakerBot about, you know, team culture and all of that, that you've brought to Bantam, you know, things that you wish you had started differently or done differently that you're now able to enact? I feel very lucky. I mean, I, I set up Bantam. I've had some success. So in theory, I could, you know, I could be sitting on a beach, but I like, why would I sit on a beach when we could make machines and, and explore the frontier, right? Right. So Bantam is set up to, to serve our customers and empower them. And for us who work here, it's a place where we get to go do meaningful work with people who are really good at what they do and inspire us to be better. Right. So, uh, I wish I could say I'm there like that, or that I'm like, I know what I'm doing and I've got it all under control and all my experience has led me to be really, you know, perfect what I do, but I am, I'm, I, I, if you're thinking that someday you're going to get there, I might not be uh, a good example. Cause I don't think I, I don't think I'm as far as I, I, I mean, we're in a sort of a paradise where we're on the Hudson river. We have the best view of any manufacturing facility on the planet in these old broken down industrial buildings we fixed up, but we're still, you know, we're still, we still make mistakes and have to figure out how to fix them. I would say the things that I do as a manager that I'm proud of is I walk around and ask what people, what they're doing and what's going on. When you have 30 employees, when you get past like X, maybe 10 employees, you have to like, it becomes a different community and you can, not everybody can know everything. And so you have to rely on infrastructure to, to like, make sure everything's still connected. So. I have a general manager, Ron, who runs operations and that allows me to be a little more visionary and dream a little bit more instead of getting down in the weeds. He loves to be down in the weeds and no. I've, I have employees who love making things a little bit better, which is really awesome. Uh, Looking back, are there any things that stand out to you from MakerBot that you're like, oh man, that, that was something I should have done better and that you do now better? There were a couple of things with MakerBot where I, um, I trusted, but didn't verify, right? Like there was a design that we developed and launched. We actually did this multiple times at MakerBot and it's face slappingly frustrating to think about where we launched a product and within three months realized that we found a better way to do it. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. That's really rough. So, um, I, so I. I don't know if I, if I were to go back in time, if I could change that, but what the story that I tell myself is it's important for me when phantom tools to understand 
how we do things, how it goes together, why we're doing what we're doing, what the, what the options are, why we didn't do other options. I don't know how else, I'm not explaining this very well, but like, I want to feel like, but I, I both trust our, in our innovation process and our ideas. And I also want to verify that they are, that there's, that they're, that, that we're, the choices we're making aren't like reactionary or, you know, based on ghosts that don't exist. Right. So. No, I think that makes sense. And that's, I think probably the toughest part of owning a business is, you know, you want to be working on the business, you know, the e-myth says, you know, work on the business, don't be the technician, but you need to be enough of a technician that you understand what's going on. You know, I, I would imagine as that team grows, becomes very hard to understand what's going on at every point in your business. Yeah. I'm committed to keeping my company less than a hundred people. Uh, when you, my experience at MakerBot was that when you get over a hundred people, then you don't, then you start not knowing everybody's name. And I, you know, I want to, part of why Phantom Tools exists is so that we can be a team and enjoy working together. So I don't know if that, I hope that comes through in the product, but it's important for us doing it. Like that's why we do it is, is a big part of it because we like working together. Awesome. Well, and a question I missed, Gamble Garage asked, are you guys going to bring back the podcast, The Edge? Oh, I love that podcast. We did two seasons of that and it was very popular. If you haven't heard it, you can go download it on your favorite podcasting application where we, uh, where we interviewed folks and we did a pretty epic uh, editing job. So we would take in each episode, we would have like two interviews and like an interstitial. And each of the interviews would be like two hours of recording that we would get down into like 10 to 12 minutes. And then we would do an interstitial little zinger. And then we would do another one of those. And, um, uh, it was a lot of work and I would like, it's, it's interesting. Zach, who is my partner in that, who now works at Shaper Origin, which is awesome. It's an awesome way to get into CNC woodworking. Uh, I was talking to him and I was like, we should just find a way to do this again, just as, as both Shaper and Bantam Tools. Like I'd be fine sharing this just to, to bring this back again. Cause it was so good. So I share your desire to bring that back. I, um, uh, hmm. so we'll, we'll keep our uh, fingers on, crossed, It's on the so. agenda. It's on All the right. agenda. All right. Well, that brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First one is, what did you research this week? And I guess you've already covered the plotters, but outside of that, what's been popping up in your browser all week? You know, this week I, um, I have been digging into what I'll say is mural making machines. Some people would say graffiti machines. And so in 2006, I saw, maybe it was 2007, might've been 2007, that I went to an art show where some, uh, uh, a European artist had a robot named Hector that did graffiti on the wall of a gallery in real time with two large uh, stepper motors on the corner of the wall with a hanging servo activated uh, uh, spray can. And I've, I've been digging into that and then I've been interested in four cable type of CNC's where there's a stepper motor in each corner, which is like sort of an interesting way of doing two, essentially 2D, but like totally overkill. Cause it's like oh, yeah. four motors for 2D, but it stops the wobble of, you know, sort of counteracts gravity. So I've been down the rabbit hole on that. It's not a very big world. Like there's probably like 10 or 12 
mural making robots that have existed in the last 20 years. Um, but I've been down the rabbit hole on that one. Oh, did you see then, uh, Shane's video stuff made here's video where he made one of those? Yes. Super that was rad. So cool. Yeah. And then I've been digging into an artist named Harold Cohen. Uh, Harold Cohen is an artist who was like a painter in the sixties in London and then went through some personal upheaval and moved to San Diego and in 68, a friend handed him the Fortran manual and he just dug it. He, was, he just dug into programming and about six months later realized he could apply it to the arts. And he built Turtle, which like ran on Logo probably and would draw large pictures in museums. Uh, and it was basically like two wheels, two stepper motors and, and a ink, some sort of ink deploying mechanism that he would fill up. Oh, cool. And so, and then he built an AI and by the mid eighties, he was building an AI that would autonomously draw pictures. And by the nineties, his, his AI was, was drawing people. And so I've been sort of interested in that in comparison to all the mid journey and all the AI kind of stuff that's going out around. So I've been down the rabbit hole on that this week as well. That's awesome. How cool. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, adding something like mid journey or whatever, any of those diffusion based models, like to one of those would be insane. It'd be really cool. Uh, well, okay. So the second question I ask every guest now is what are you working on, on yourself, you know, to make yourself a better person or leader or manager or employee or any, or all of the above? I mean, uh, yeah, I got lots of work to do. The thing that I'm noodling on a lot lately is how, like, um, is this idea of walk around management. So. My grandfather had a manufacturing company. He worked on the Manhattan Project and oh, wow. then started a company to, to do called High Speed that did uh, high, it was check weighing machines. So there would be machines that would go on a, on an assembly line that would, uh, as your can of, or as your thing of Morton salt would come down the line, it would measure the weight. And if it was too full or too empty, it would kick it off. And they would do that with high speed precision. and. He was right there with, you know, he started the company in the late fifties and integrated computers super early and all that kind of stuff. But, um, uh, maybe I, I've been thinking about this lately cause I've been thinking about him and about 10 years ago, I visited, he sold the company in the eighties, but I went to go visit and everybody was still there. It was in Ithaca, New York. They moved it eventually recently to Florida, but everybody talked about how he would do this walk around management thing. So it's made me really think about like, okay, just walking around and asking people what they're doing and. I don't do it enough and I really like it. The noodling, I'm like, how do I run the, how do I, how do I make this part of just the day of, and, and get more attention to, to, to each, like, and it's not like I'm going around and being like with a clipboard or anything. I'm just being like, Hey, what are you working on today? What are the challenges? Right. What's, what, what, what's, what's up? You know? Well, I imagine that presents its own problems too. You have to create the culture where people aren't worried to have you over their shoulder. Because yeah. I could, I could imagine some places where if the boss is walking around constantly, everybody's on their toes and gritting their teeth all day, and it's a miserable experience. Yeah, so I'd like to, but I'm definitely like I would put myself not as the as the best manager. Oh, the other thing just worked. This is the other thing that's happening this week is uh, I didn't expect that uh, we're, we banked with Signature Bank. Oh, jeez, our, our bank failed on Monday Oof. And, and we had payroll on Wednesday. So I've been thinking a lot this week about how to just about 
about how to solve those problems. We solved, we, we worked with our payroll company and just directly sent them money to get payroll done so we didn't have to rely on the bank. But no, anyway. How has that been? Because you're the first person I've talked to that actually has a direct connection to either one of these banks. I mean, obviously it's terrible, but you know, what, how is the process to go about, you know, moving your money and all of that? Is, is it as horrible as it sounds? I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the current administration that stepped in and said, we're not going to protect the investors. We're not going to protect the people who work there. We're going to protect the depositors because, um, I don't know exactly what happened with signature bank, but with Silicon Valley bank, they were like, we're in trouble. Give everybody, everybody who works here, get your bonuses now. Let's pay ourselves as much money because we're about to get in big trouble. Screw our customers. Let's get out. Right. And so I've just been, you know, it's interesting to think about banks. You usually think about them providing a service to us. Right. But it's sort of turned around in this situation to be like, oh no, they, we are not as customers, the priority in a bank that isn't, that is like privately owned. Their goal is to make as much money as possible using our money. I've just sort of been like, sort of sometimes there's like sometimes capitalism gets ahead of itself and like it doesn't necessarily <laughs> yeah work the way you know the way you might I might expect it to it sort of doesn't a lot of times I expect people to have the best intentions and it's always sort of a shock when that's not true yeah, um I think a lot of us forget how banks actually work until something yeah. like that happens you know we think yeah. that like oh that's like it's like this digital safety deposit box that I'm putting all my money in. It just stays there forever. And it's like, nope, they're, they're using it to make themselves money the entire yeah. time. Well, that's so, very, I'm glad that you guys were able to get it sorted so quickly and that, yeah, the, yeah. the administration stepped in and guaranteed the, the de depositors because, yeah, it could have gotten even worse for sure. Yeah, could have been a very, I mean, it was a scramble regardless, but for companies that might be a, more, a little more hand to mouth, it could have been the end. So. Yeah, definitely. Well, Bree, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you online? You know, links, all that stuff. Yeah, I would say the best place to find my work is at phantomtools.com. And we have all the, we have all the, you know, we're on Instagram and all those kind of places as well. In general, personally, I don't really have a lot internet. I would say I have, I still maintain a Twitter account at twitter.com slash Bree would be the other place to to follow me awesome well again thank you so much i really really appreciate the time i this has been great we could talk all day so yeah. looking really really looking forward to your future podcast as well thanks so much thank you and thanks to all the patreon members who make this show possible thank you for listening and i'll be back next week